My name is Noah Gregory, and this week on Half Past Zero, I am going back to basics, and I'm going to do a solo run for the first part in what will be a three-part series. We will be joined by some guests here next week and the week after, and this series is going to be covering the creation of the latest Playglow original short film, Greenlee. Before we get started, I wanted to extend a genuine thank you to every guest that has joined us on the show so far, who has shared their story, uh, their history with content creation, who have shared tips as to how they get their stuff. Uh, I'm not sure about you all listening at home, but I have gotten a lot out of these conversations that have really helped me streamline my creative process to be more efficient, and in most cases, a lot more fun. And that's what it's all about, after all, right? Having fun doing what we enjoy doing, while also churning out some work that we can be proud of and that hopefully people enjoy and that people connect with and relate to. So, with that said, what is Greenly, and why am I dedicating three whole separate episodes to its production? Well, to put it shortly, it's a short film that I have been developing ideas for for the past two or three years now, which I have finally decided to kind of leap headfirst into and try to bring to life this year. The initial idea for the project came around mid to late 2017, maybe even earlier. Playglow had just started out, and the three core members of the team at the time, that being the three of us who were most active in the day-to-day, were myself, Jacqueline Helms, and Garrick Crawford, three of my very good friends. We had been doing sketch comedy on the channel for some time by that point, a new sketch every week, and we were getting a little tired of it, to be honest. And so we were wanting to do something a little more serious, something more high quality, both in terms of writing and in terms of general production. We had a project called Desolation written out, something that I'm fairly certain I've covered in a previous episode. But to recap, in case you don't remember, or in case I don't remember, and it just turns out I never talked about it, Desolation was a project that really kind of formed Playglow. I wrote it with my friend Hayden Jackson during one of our earliest meetings about the direction we wanted to take Playglow in, the Playglow brand in. I believe it was so early into that process that we weren't even named Playglow yet. We were still generally geeky, which was the channel that Hayden had brought me in to help him kind of develop. The problem with Desolation, with the script that we had written, and we acknowledged this even the night that we wrote it, was that it called for some effects and just general talent that we didn't really have access to at the time. And so we wanted to create something at this point, at the time we'd started writing the ideas for what's now become Greenly, we wanted to do something smaller, something similar in tone, but smaller. Something that could be completely driven by one actor portraying one character in one location based off of one very simple idea and tackling a serious theme that a lot of us at the time could have related to. We came up with the idea for a horror short film called Vessels, and we'll touch on what the horror aspects were later. Uh, But it was going to explore the idea of grief and the toll that it had on our protagonist as he grieved the loss of his wife and the cancer diagnosis that his young son had just had. What we would do before we began every single writing session for Vessels, we would sit on my bedroom floor kind of in a circle, and we would share with each other stories from our lives where we felt scared emotionally, and where we'd experienced grief or where we'd been in pain emotionally. 
We wanted to learn from each other's experiences so that we could apply a more realistic feel to the script that we were writing and take a more realistic approach to the material that we were wanting to tackle. I hadn't really experienced too much in the form of grief at the time. None at the immediate moment for sure, so it was kind of difficult for me to come up with a realistic approach by myself at the time. Luckily, both Jacqueline and Garrick and a few other Playglow members who would occasionally join us and share their stories in that little opening session that we would always have, it gave me a lot of perspective that made it into the script and that still lingers in my mind to this day and in the latest iteration of what this story has become, which is quite drastically different from what it initially started out as. So what was that initial story? What did Vessels look like at its starting point? Well, as I said, we pick up with a protagonist whose wife has just died, very recently. That alone takes a heavy toll on him, but to make matters worse, his son has recently received a terminal diagnosis. The protagonist of the story is not handling the circumstances he finds himself in very well, and understandably so. He begins to have hallucinations that one of his deceased wife's dolls, which she kept around, has been possessed by a spirit that he eventually believes to be his wife. And that's kind of where the horror elements would have been present during those early interactions between the protagonist and that doll. It would later be revealed that the protagonist was indeed imagining these scenarios, and he comes to realize that his son needs him. He would pack the doll away and spend his son's last days at his side, still obviously in pain, but accepting his reality and doing what he knows he needs to do, be there for tomorrow and beyond. This idea was something that we did end up completing a script for, which is admittedly lost now, and while I still really do like that idea, it's obvious that at the time there were still certain aspects of grief that I didn't completely understand. As one of my recent mentors constantly tells me, never talk about something you haven't experienced or that you aren't prepared to experience firsthand. As I'd mentioned, I hadn't really experienced grief yet during a time where it would be as impactful to me. I'd lost grandparents, sure, but I didn't really remember the sensation of those losses. I certainly don't remember much of the lasting effects that those losses had on me. One thing that I didn't understand is that sometimes you don't just mourn those who die. You also mourn those you lose to life as well. You mourn the loss of relationships, those whose paths deviate from yours and separate you. It was in the following year after we wrote Vessels that I lost a large portion of my friends who had been by my side for years at that point due to big life changes and alternative decisions in our lives, and I began to realize how painful loss can be, how painful change can be. It was during that time that I really did become kind of just a shell of myself for a while, before eventually I started to work to become a better person, a better person than I'd been before. Those losses motivated me to move forward in hopes that maybe a better me could bring forth a better life. For a while, things were pretty good. I was better than I had been. I even began to regain some of those lost friendships that I'd previously mentioned, and I began to spend time with people that I hadn't seen in a while, along with those old friends. 
I had also just started my freshman year of college, and I met some great people there and developed some great friendships in those classes that still stand strong to this day even if we don't communicate that frequently. I was able to gain perspective on how loss can lead to growth. Truly, it motivates us because, in my opinion, we don't really want to stay the same if everything around us is changing. But all good things must come to an end, right? So during the early months of 2019, it was late January, maybe early February, my grandmother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I had spent years of my life at that point absolutely terrified of the day that she would get sick and die, completely unprompted. The day that it became a reality was terrifying for me, and it set me on a path that taught me so many lessons about living and also about dying. One thing that I remember, one of the strangest sensations I've ever felt in my life, was me beginning to mourn my grandmother months before she was gone. The morning I found out she was sick, I was filled with the same kind of pain that you would imagine would only be reserved for something like a funeral. She and I had been close my whole life as she lived in the same small town as me, only a few streets away. She was the family member that I spent most of my younger years with, and I'd felt in the years that I'd gotten older and more distant that I had taken her for granted. All of that culminated the morning that I found out that she was sick, and I began to mourn her long before she was even gone. I spent every Thursday through Sunday at her house. I would travel home from school on Thursdays, and I would stay until Sunday. I would have to help her get in and out of her chair and her bed. Eventually, I had to pick her up, place her in a wheelchair to get her from place to place. I would wake up every morning that I was there at 6 a.m. so that I could help get her up for the day. And I, for some reason, told myself during this time that I had to be the emotionally stable one of the family through all of this. It was during these early mornings when my aunt and grandmother would be in a different room and I would be waiting to come in and help that I'd allow myself just for a few minutes to get emotional. That was mostly the only time that I ever would. Every other second of every other day, I felt obligated to be strong for everyone else, including my grandmother, because I felt a need to keep hope alive. It got to the point that I was really struggling. I felt alone, and so I would leave the house the day and spend time with the Playglow crew under the guise of us making a short film for her to see before she was gone. That is where the second iteration of Vessels came into the picture. It had completely changed by that point, only really keeping the name to drive home the point that when we lose the people we care about, our vessels become more than just our own. That was a line from the project at the time. This story was about a man experiencing his last days on Earth. He, like the original protagonist from the original story, was mourning. Unlike that initial protagonist, this one was mourning his own life. He was traveling through his own recollections, revisiting moments important to him and significant to his life and to who he had become. It was about the protagonist accepting his fate and appreciating the life that he had been given the chance to live. 
it seems fitting to have wanted that to be my project to my grandmother, but in truth, it was just my way of telling myself that maybe it was just her time. It was a difficult reality for me to accept, much like it was to the protagonist of that story. But in time, long after she was gone, I did come to terms with that. This iteration of the story obviously was never released, it was never even really completed, but it inspired a lot of what would come after in terms of where the vessel's story, soon to become Greenlee, where it was headed, what it was representing. It represented a lot of the experiences that I had gone through personally during that time that I just mentioned. Later that year is when I began developing Vessels as a six-episode apocalyptic miniseries for ASU TV. I had spent months grieving, and I needed at that time a venue to express myself, as I have never been too good at just talking about my feelings. This story followed David Belk. The Bellkeeper of the Valley was his title. A title that to David's friend, whose name I can't honestly remember, represented nothing more than the superstitions of a group of people who couldn't accept that sometimes bad things just happen for no reason. A lot of these character interactions would be about their different ideologies and the debates about those different ideologies. The bellkeeper of the valley was responsible with ringing the bell, which could be heard throughout the valley each dawn and dusk to ward off the Disciples of the Shadow, or something like that, an entity said to live in the valley and kidnap survivors of the apocalyptic event known as the Light, which had caused the mass disappearance of billions worldwide. David himself wasn't much of a believer in the job that he was doing, but he did it anyway because, as he said, it doesn't celebrate the fanatical ideas of a demon in the valley, it represents the willingness to overcome our pain and grief. And that line sums up the thematic battles of the entire concept, overcoming the things that keep us down. The entire Vessels miniseries idea was about a man who felt like he took a loved one for granted, and now that she was gone, he felt as though he had to make up for that. His battle isn't just to overcome his grief, that's the simple part. It's also to rejoin the living and do the opposite of what the previous Vessel's iteration was based on, living his life. This is not about these Vessels becoming more than our own, as the line in one of the previous iterations was. This is about a man who needs to live for himself again, who needs to live his own life so that it doesn't pass him by. He is still alive. He still has a chance to live and to love and to leave behind a great legacy. And this is about his battle of reclaiming that. Now we move on to the next iteration, the current iteration of this concept. It started out earlier this year, still under the name Vessels. But after making a new friend whose middle name happened to be a very unique Greenlee, I made a few changes. A lot of the themes explored in the episodic miniseries are still present. The idea of a man tethered to a life that is no longer present and who is unwilling to move on because he feels himself to be responsible for a death that he couldn't prevent. I won't go much more into detail other than that, but 
that's where we are with the current script. In a lot of ways, it is the culmination of each and every concept of vessels, now greenly, that I have ever had, that Playglow has ever had, and I'm excited to be able to develop this. And now that we've kind of gotten the background of the history of the story of Greenlee, we'll move into talking a little bit about production as it's been going so far. That's something that we're really going to dive into in the next episode for sure, because I'm getting Stefan Gramling to come back on the show, who is the primary actor of this Greenlee project. He plays Charles, and he has a lot of great insight. He has brought a lot to this character. He's really developed this character into his own. I intentionally made the character kind of a blank slate in the script so that Stefan and I, while we were working together, since it's mainly just he and I out there actually shooting things, he and I could develop this character together. Stefan could give this character his own unique uh, tics, his own unique movements, uh, his own unique facial expressions and, and reactions to certain things happening to him. He could move the character along and develop the character before a, a big kind of uh, a life-changing for the character, life-changing experience uh, that happens around the midpoint of the script. Up until then, Stefan really gets to develop this character and progress him at a what I feel is a very realistic pace given, you know, that it's happening in recording and, and, and I get to control the pacing with that. But Stefan has done an amazing job bringing that character to life and making him feel fully realized and making him feel like he really is grieving the loss of somebody that he doesn't think he can live his life without. And this character has lost other people too in this story. He isn't just grieving the loss of the titular Greenlee. He's grieving an entire family that he lost to an apocalyptic event. We bring the light back from the last iteration of this script that causes the disappearance of billions worldwide. And it just so happens that Charles lost everybody. He didn't lose Greenlee initially to the light. That's something that, that especially takes a toll on him as the story progresses, is that he lost her after the light. He, he had a chance, perhaps, to save her, and he couldn't. And that weighs on him, and that prevents him from moving on. And so the story is about this character, about Charles, having to come to terms with the fact that maybe he did make a mistake, and maybe Greenlee's death could have been prevented. But it's happened, and he is fighting a battle that is already fought, that's already been lost, and he has to come to terms with how he can move on from that how he can grow as a person, and how he can ensure that his life doesn't pass him by. One of the earliest talks that Stefan and I had, it was on the first day that we went out and shot, we intentionally didn't go out there with any storyboards because we had around five, six hours of daylight left, and we only needed to film a single scene that was maybe four or five lines long. It was the scene that I think I've publicly released at least pictures of, so it's not I'm not diving into spoilers, but it's the character of Charles going to the gravesite of Greenlee and removing a ring from his finger and placing it on the cross. And that kind of symbolizes, you would think it would symbolize him letting her go, but in a lot of ways, it's more so about the fact that he is tethered to her. He's tethered to that spot and he can't, he can't move on. And so one of the things that Stefan and I really wanted to focus on is how for this character, 
a lot of the world is just out of focus. And when the world is in focus, he's completely off balance. He, in, in his own mind, is completely unfocused and just unaware of things going on. And so a lot that we did with the cinematography, I had Stefan help me make a lot of cinematography decisions. A lot of it starts off obscured, and then we'll rack focus onto a subject. And it seems at first like it's just a way to make it look cinematic, uh, which is kind of a cheat to make things look more cinematic in my eyes. But there is a thematic reasoning for that, that that starts to fade away as that character progresses. And you just you see, especially in the beginning, everything is constantly out of focus. Focus is constantly changing. And it, it at some points probably gets annoying to the audience, just like it would get annoying to the character. It's just a way that we tried to put the audience into the mindset of the character. There's no dialogue for the first five minutes of this short film. There's none. It's just... It's just Charles. It's just the camera. We have an original score being composed by one of my friends, Brady Whaley, and another Playglow member, Hayden Jackson. They're working together. And it's, it's those three elements that really carry this very quiet, very personal and sincere look through this broken man's day. It carries the beginning part of this short film up until the big dialogue scene that we have between Charles and another important character who we're just calling the blind man who lost his sight to the light after he lost his entire family as well. And the dynamic between those two characters is very interesting and I'm not going to go into too much detail about kind of the exchange that they have but they both have very different ideologies and they both believe things that might seem strange for them to believe given their circumstances, given their very different but yet very similar circumstances. And that's been a lot of fun to play with. Uh, I'm actually going to be portraying the blind man myself, a recent addition, just because we have to get the rough cut of this project done here pretty quickly. I am actually turning this, submitting this project into a class, and I believe it's due in about a week or two weeks. We're on pretty good pacing. We really just have to get that dialogue scene done. But that's going to be a very interesting dynamic to tackle with Stefan. And I think that he especially is going to have a lot to contribute to how that plays out. Because like I said, he just has had the advantage of taking this character that I had as somewhat of a blank slate so that he could develop that character himself. He has the advantage of taking this character that he's developed and kind of combating it about against this, this character that that I wrote with the intention of another friend of mine playing, and he had the advantage of somewhat developing him during a previous shoot, but this character, he, he is there to move the character of Charles along, to move his story along, to help this character move on, and I think that's going to be really interesting to play off of, of how Stefan has developed the Charles character. I know that I very briefly touched on the fact that my friend Brady Whaley is going to be scoring this Greenlee project with my friend Hayden Jackson, but I've had some very fun discussions with them about the role that the score should play. I said very early on before we even started shooting any clips that I, I knew that the score was going to really carry the beginning five or six minutes of the short film. There's no dialogue, it's just Stefan's character acting, uh, cinematography, and, and those decisions we made with the cinematography to really connect the audience with the character of Charles and the score. And Brady has taken a lot of time and care into making sure that every single sound that you hear in the score reflects 
the thoughts of Charles as a character in those initial opening minutes of the short film. And he's done an excellent job with that. And that is really going to be something that I think helps the, the audience relate to Charles, to Stefan's character. Because while Stefan does an excellent job, the, the music really drives home exactly what Charles is thinking in those moments of quiet and the, the level of pain and just melancholy, just melancholy emotional turmoil that Charles is experiencing throughout these opening minutes. Well, with that said, that's going to conclude the first part of this three-part series. As I said, in the next episode, I'm going to be sitting down with Stefan Gramling, and we're going to talk more in detail about some of the decisions that he made to bring that character to life. Uh, we're going to have a dialogue about how I interpreted that character initially and how that interpretation might have changed a little bit because of his performance and because of the attributes that he has put with that character now. Uh, but until then, I thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down and listen to this discussion, listen to this kind of explanation as to what the Greenlee project I've been working on is. I had a good time talking about it. It was very nice to be able to, I guess, get to get a lot of this off my chest and really talk in detail for a long period of time about kind of my thought process behind this Greenlee project, behind where the story is going, how I wanted things to play out. Uh, thank you for listening. This has been Half Past Zero. My name is Noah Gregory, and I will see you in the next episode.